Welcome to Zeitgeist with Zach Geist. I'm your host, Zach Geist. This show is made possible by Student Loan Tutor, which you can find at studentloantutor.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment and give us a review. Thank you. I don't normally do intros for my podcast, but I think this is important. Uh, Stephen Jenkinson has transformed my life, and there's not enough I could say about his impact. So I'm going to say less instead of more and just encourage you to really listen and dive deep and take the content and dialogue and invitation of this episode into heart and be with it. Uh, This Saturday, he has a grief and mystery tour that's coming to Salt Lake City. Stephen's from Canada. This is going to be from 7 to 9.30 p.m. It may sell out. That's this Saturday, November 16th, and you could find it on the Ecstatic Dance Salt Lake City page in the event section. Uh, Also, he's written three books, Come of Age, A Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble, Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul, and Money and the Soul's Desire. Enjoy this podcast. I certainly did. So I'm I'm happy that we're here. I'm uh, trying to work through all of the, you know, panicked emotions that we feel uh, when we're, you know, men, you know, trying to work through uh, something that is a tool that we need to be able to function in today's, t- you know, day and time and in, in the current zeitgeist and uh, don't know how to function with it uh, and don't know how to get the answer. So I feel like there's a lot of that going on. And uh, there's a lot of deep things that you know, I think a lot of people are experts in these things and uh, are completely lost. And I'm not claiming to not be lost in these other things either, but I definitely uh, spent a lot of time preparing for this. Uh, I, I've read, Stephen, I've read your book, Money and the Soul's Desire, three times uh, because I don't know, I feel like that's a, a major issue among people is, uh, is that they just have no idea where, where the origins of money are and... Uh, how the hell to earn a livelihood in today's day and age, a right livelihood at least. And, uh, you know, so I've read that book three times. I've read Die Wise and I read Case of Elderhood, Case, uh, uh, Come of Age, Case for Elderhood. Uh, the day that it came out, it got delivered. And I, I, I don't think, I think I put it down one time and I just finished the whole book. And uh, yeah, I, I feel a deep craving that there's kind of, I've always felt that there's a big wrongness of, modernity, like something that's going on, there's something missing. Uh, I felt that from, you know, the beginning, really, uh, since I was given the the model of what God, who God was, you know, this man in the sky that has this list of things you should do. And, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, and I think that that's led me on a, on a journey of trying to find, I didn't know what elders were, that I was looking for them. Uh, but I was ultimately looking for wisdom, um, which you'd think I would know to go to a library and like what books to find, but I didn't even know that. Uh, I knew that I went to school and tried to learn things and couldn't really remember what I was taught because I couldn't figure out what context I was supposed to be learning them in. Um, and uh, yeah, and I feel like I've personally been bumbling around a lot how I'm bumbling around on the beginning of this call, kind of like I've been dropped somewhere, very alien, trying to piece everything together. And it seems, it appears as though most people don't really feel like anything is that messed up. If they could go bowling, as you said with Carl, or uh, watch the Super Bowl, uh, they could somehow get around feeling these things. And I've been feeling this anime or, uh, internal terror of fear of death since I was a young child. And, uh, and, uh, I feel like for some reason I draw others to me that also have this thing. And I've been kind of a unknowing, uneducated shepherd of sorts of the people that are the lost misfit toys that find themselves on my Island, uh, or the Island with me. It's not even my Island. Uh, we're just here orphans on this Island and, uh, my family history. And then I'll, ask you some questions, I guess, is that my family, Die Wise, uh, uh, after I read that, it deeply troubled me. And uh, and then there's some just like visuals, especially with the man with the lunar head constantly falling and the woman just totally disassociated from 
what the hell was happening right in front of her, saying like everything's just going to be fine. Like I felt that feeling of just everything totally fucked and people all around just acting as though it's totally fine. And that it's a horrendous terror feeling when that happens. And uh, I decided to go like find people in my family that were older, that were still alive. And I have people in their 90s. My best friend from childhood, uh, his his grandfather is 100. I went and spent time with him. I spent some time in the summers with him. And, uh, and yeah, and I found that none of them are thinking about death. They're like, no, I don't think about that at all. And uh, I don't know, it was almost, I'm glad I did it, but I left almost more confused than when I started. And uh, yesterday, I, I in preparing for this, I kind of go through some form of loose ritual to prepare for these podcasts or conversations. And uh, I felt called to listen to the song uh, Darker by Leonard Cohen. And as I listen to that, because I somehow relate Leonard Cohen to you, uh, I think you mentioned him quite a few times, and he's Canadian, and he's not so positive and jovial as as uh, many singers. And uh, I listened to that, and uh, for the first time ever, I realized that the the man singing in the background, I believe is it's a tenor, uh, sounds identical almost to my grandfather in the way that he would sing in the Russian choir. Uh, and I realized that at that moment I was listening to this, it was my, the, the, the death of my, the nine year anniversary of my grandfather's death was yesterday while I'm listening to this, realizing this and uh, synchronicity sometimes finds me in these ways. And, uh, and I realized I don't have anything recorded of him, like none of his music, like none of him singing. And that was his favorite thing to do. And it's like when he died, everything died with him. And, uh, you know, there's some goofy pictures that are remaining, you know, oftentimes, uh, yeah, yeah, maybe I want to pick up here and uh, I don't really have a question per se. I more like wanted to say all that because that was what was alive and kind of have you take it from here if you don't mind. <laughs> take it from here. Yeah. <laughs> well, I could, I, could, I could hop in. I just have nothing else right now other than... I could continue to ramble in that way, and I felt I had, I had come to the end of that road and was staring over a precipice, and so I thought maybe this was a time to, to pause. Yeah, or to turn left or right. I hadn't even considered turning. I just was in the pause mode. Well, you know, the old man, that's what I call uh, Mr. Cohen. The old man, he said, he said many a fitting thing at a time like this, and one of his great lines was... Um, well, we're laughing and we're drinking and the band is really happening and the place is dead as heaven on a Saturday night. And my very close companion got me fallen, got me laughing. She's a hundred, but she's wearing something tight. And I lift my glass to the awful truth that you can't reveal to the ears of youth except to say it isn't worth a dime. And the whole damn place goes crazy twice and it's once for the devil and it's once for Christ. And the boss don't like these dizzy heights. And so we're busted in the blinding lights of closing time. I mean, that's prophetic. That's um, descriptive. It's uh, nuanced. It's poetic. And at the end of the day, it's happening. As he says, the band is really happening. And the band of, that's, that's leading this current regime to its absolutely mandatory conclusion is starting to kick into high gear. I don't think you're misapprehending uh, any of these matters from, from what you said, but uh, it's important that we all acknowledge that um, a sense of moral collapse uh, as a kind of realized thing is absolutely mandatory. Uh, but, but the sense of um, personal annihilation that we would imagine as an inevitable companion to that realization is absolutely not necessary. That's a, a degree of self-absorption uh, that the current uh, order and its, uh, and its you know, near future um, doesn't require from us and it requires obviously something else to me. And it would be this. We have an obligation now, first and foremost, to be faithful witnesses to how things have come to be as they are but more especially how they are. And believe it or not, I mean, this may sound counterintuitive, but 
in all my travels in this last 15 years or so in particular, I'm, I'm completely persuaded that the willingness to see things for what they are, despite the quote information age and the access to 500 channels and nothing on, uh, it, it doesn't cash out. There is no shared understanding of where we're at. There's shared dread to a certain extent, but dread is not understanding. And misanthropy is not conscience. And the capacity to hate humanity for the, the, the obvious outcomes that humanity's participated in generating, it's understandable, but it's not, it's not honorable. It's not dignified, it's not mandatory, and it's not part of being human to hate one's humanity. You know, we have the word human, and then we have another word where we put the E on the end. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I've never heard anybody wonder why we have another word that has the E on the end of human. I've never thought about that. No, I've never met anyone who does, so I'm going to think about it out loud with you just now. It's human. If you don't think about it too much, but just enough to convince yourself you have thought about it, and if you're a Western person, generally you come up with this. Well, human is the, uh, is the high water mark of evolution. And... Uh, and human is an inevitable consequence of being born bipedal and upright and, and sentient and, and uh, you know, like us. You don't have to do anything to be human. You're human from the get-go. And you don't even have to do anything really to maintain it. Mysteriously, it's self-maintaining. It's like um, one of these uh, smart houses. That's what being human is, apparently. And all you got to do is uh, show up or not even show up. And your humanity is just there on the shelf waiting for you to pick it up and slip it into your pocket. And you can never alienate yourself from it. You can never be deeply unserved by it because it's, uh, it's innately um, your deepest running capacity. And if all of that's true, it doesn't explain why we have the word humane. But I think the word humane tells us something about human. We have two different words because they're two different conditions. And the, the, the fact, if you will, of being human is not a given. Every culture that practices any kind of initiation at puberty knows this full well, that they're in the human-making business when they take those 12 or 13-year-old kids and put them through the meat grinder of life. They're trying to make a human being out of a child, it seems to me, which mm-hmm. is to say then they're, they're, their um, deeply received understanding is that humans are made by life. They're not born into life. And it's not inevitable that we become human. And that's why we have the word humane, because we can be upright homo sapiens Mm -hmm. and frankly be monsters and be unconsciously cruel. And the whole panoply that we don't necessarily need to overturn every you know, every leaf of, to get an understanding of what I'm referring to there. Humane is a human on a good day, you could say. And the rest of the days, our humanity allegedly might be in place, but our capacity to be humane is not an inevitable occurrence. That's what we have to work on. That's our labor, it seems to me. And it could be, just taking a guess here, it could be that the that the generational spirit project that has really failed to materialize in my generation may be erupting into yours. And it goes something like this. You know, you might have to outgrow in your lifetime the notion that, uh, you know, the Western humanist tradition uh, was one of the great achievements of humankind. I mean, there were achievements in it, there's no question. But if we're the great-grandchildren of that development in the West, well, we have a lot to answer for. Either we blew it horribly and the situation was, was, you know, tuned and toned for our benefit and it was virtually impossible to screw it up, but we did. Or the Western humanist tradition uh, established us as kind of the clown of creation, you know, kind of occupying this vacant center place where everything appears to rotate around us and, and we, have, we have nothing to do but benefit like children from an inevitably occurring 
you know, family unit that spins around us. And it seems that in the West, we're fundamentally children in the sense of, as I said in Griefwalker, of being on the take more or less chronically. Every human culture is on the take, but maybe the thing that sets us apart from many other human cultures is that we look upon being on the take as an inevitable consequence of being who we are and, and what we're entitled to and the position we occupy in the, in the moral order of creation. And other cultures awaken to the fallacy of that at some point in their cultural development and engage in all kinds of ritual activity and storytelling and uh, ceremony and so on that's designed to see to it that humans do not occupy the center of anything, that we're witnesses to a mysterious center that is actually not occupied, and that we're there in service of that mystery, not as its beneficiary. And I, I never saw this happen in my lifetime. And, and it may fall to you and your contemporaries to, to realize that you're going to have to leave in the air uh, a kind of scent for generations to come. Let's imagine that there are generations to come and the scent has to be. I think that's important. I think we need to imagine that there are generations to come. There's so many people that are my age and younger. I'm 39 and there's people in their twenties saying that it's all over. You know, it's not even a matter of whether human beings are going to continue to exist on this planet. It's just a matter of now how do I enjoy? How do I enjoy the last moments of the existence as everything spins out into you know entropy and death and you know fires and the apocalypse? Yeah, that's that's an easy one to be frank. It's it's here's the challenge to that to my mind. Um, if this seems so self evident, and if we have kind of radical clarity about that, that's you know it's 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 an ongoing undoing disaster. If that's true, you've got to wonder if we're capable of that kind of clarity, then where was that clarity at any other time but now? Are we really willing to believe that it takes the undoing of everything to get us to go clear, if you will, when, you know, when things were less dire, there was no prompt to clarity? There was no capacity for this kind of decisive um, faithful witness to the way things are? No, it's, it's like this to me. Uh, you know, I run a school and uh, I'm lucky enough to have it and people come and, and a lot of younger people are coming in the last four or five years. And uh, one of the things that a lot of people contend with, particularly when, if it's a school that's devoted to real articulation and eloquence, is that they freeze when it's time to speak. And generally, the reason that they give is that they have no dem demonstrated competence in this area and they feel very intimidated. In other words, they're stupid. At some fundamental level, quite a few people seem to be walking around with that kind of in intellectual death sentence called, I'm stupid and there's really, you can't really expect much from me. Mm. And so I take this in hand and I say, okay, so you're quite clear on your own stupidity. And they'll say, yes. And I'll say, everything else, you have no intelligence about it at all. But on the matter of your stupidity, you have remarkably precise intelligence. Is this true? And now they become a little more uncertain because they're not sure what the right answer is. Yeah, you seem to be good at that. And, and I'm saying, do you see that the, that the capacity to be clear about your stupidity must serve you elsewhere too? It must. If it's there, it's there. It's not just relative to your stupidity that you have this kind of insight. You have it in other matters too. And if that's true, and it's clearly it is, then how stupid can you be if you're clear about your stupidity? Mm. And I'm saying the same thing about the sense of nihilism, you see. Mm -hmm. It's not, nihilism is not a conscience and it's nothing to be proud of. It's nothing to brag about. It's not even clear that it's so. But with all of that, of course we have to acknowledge that, the, that we're on the other side of a time that we could have done something where it would not have come to this. That's, that's true. A lot of people say it was in the 70s. Somewhere in the 70s, if enough of us had lived otherwise and purchased otherwise and, and decided otherwise, we'd be in the land of otherwise in some fashion today. But we didn't do that. And so we're now what W.H. Auden 
described this as being. We would rather be defeated than be persuaded. And so we're in the realm of defeat now. And North Americans, with all our material sophistication, we're not good at being defeated. And so this is another thing, hard thing, to learn in these days. I think that that's maybe why the current narrative is to go back in time somehow and make America or whatever that stands for great again. And somehow we can rekindle. It's like the plant that's dead can somehow be re brought back into time or somehow maybe even the scientific element is something similar that somehow future measures of existing technology can somehow create some form of Darth Vader-like adaptation to sustain life on Earth, to sustain, to keep things the way that they are, which I'm not particularly convinced at all that the way things are are so great or that we're such a, at a privileged time of what it feels like to be human if you're really feeling what it is like to be human. I'm not so convinced that right now is better. Like I hear Steven Pinker's voice in my head right now. And I went down that path just to see, you know, what, what are, what is keeping this thing going forward? And it's so embedded that even though I was certain that wherever direction we were going, wasn't it, uh, I've been fed this, that this idea of enlightenment and this idea of modernity, uh, being a vast improvement on every aspect of what it means to be human since time immemorial. And I'm not convinced of that. And I hope that you could speak to that. Maybe this idea of the enlightenment and, and I know you have been speaking on this, but I feel like a lot of people have been told this and feel that there's something off about it. And how do we pick ourselves up, look in the mirror to see where we're at, see the conditions that we're in, develop these rituals, these communities, these villages, receive this education, even if we know what we're looking for is, is grief, where do we find it? And how do we cultivate humanity in ourselves and in each other? You know, if I actually took those, that sequence of questions on right now, uh, I would be the least likely person to be listened to. You know, the, the truth is I don't have all the answers, most of the answers, or almost any of the answers. Um, and I don't feel bereft for not having them. I do think, though, that I have, I'm lucky enough to have a kind of mind that's, that gets shanghaied by the questions. And so uh, I think this, I'm going to choose a very specific example to respond to all of those things, and hopefully it might begin to do so. You probably know that I worked for quite a long time in what I call the death trade. I don't do that now, and I haven't done it for about a decade, but it doesn't seem to preclude me from either commenting about how things are now in that regard or remembering the kind of livid um, circumstances that I was working in at the time. And the following story comes from those days. In my country, Canada, we have, I think, legalized across the country now the practice of euthanasia, although no one's calling it now, that now because they never liked the word. It wasn't that user-friendly. So I think they're actually calling it MADE, medically assistant, assisted dying or something like that. So that apparently is a lot friendlier. And, uh, of course, we've legalized marijuana at exactly the same time. Mm -hmm. And I think these two things are related. So I'm going to suggest how. First of all, it's the same generation that was demanding both. The same generation characterized both euthanasia and cannabis as personal rights. Rights, R-I-G-H-T-S, by the way. And so I, I wasn't that interested in the cannabis thing, but I was pretty interested in the developments around this uh, euthanasia thing. And here's what I came up with. The people who defended, and they are legion, defended on the basis that euthanasia solves the problem of intractable human suffering at the end of life. And if it's a solution and we don't legalize it, this is tantamount to being a culture so steeped in cruelty and self-harm that it's not to be taken seriously and should be ushered off, uh, you know, the time parade. 
But if you investigate it closely, I think you may come up with this understanding too. First of all, euthanasia is an exercise in self-mastery. First and foremost, what it does is it places into the hands of the supplicant the way of self-annihilation. If that sounds too prejudiced, self-ending then. But it puts it in one's own hands. So immediately you know one of the things it's contending with and catering to is the addiction to autonomy or to self-mastery or to self-control, right? So it, it's a kind of addiction to competence gone radical and strange. I'm it's following. certainly that, among other things. That's, that's one. Two, let's investigate whether or not it's in fact a solution to suffering there at the end of life. The assumption obviously would be that if you engage in euthanasia, first of all, you're reassured that you won't have to suffer. Well, the truth is you have to suffer to get anywhere in the zone where euthanasia would be made available to you by a prescribing doctor. I mean, if you're going to do it legally, you have to qualify. <laughs> so there's that, but it's, it's minor hoop jumping really, but you do have to be fairly persuasive that you are going, you're brought to the cliff edge of sanity and beyond by virtue of your suffering unto death. Well, in a death phobic culture, that's not a hard case to make. Most people are driven to the cliff edge of madness by virtue of the oncomingness of their death because they come to their death as an amateur and as a rookie and as, as someone steeped properly in dread over that event. Three, if a, if a culture, I, I, I submit to you that the culture that I'm a product of is a death phobic culture. It's a lot of other things, but it's certainly that. If a death phobic culture legalizes euthanasia, I think you can be absolutely certain that the legalization does not challenge fundamentally the death phobia. After all, the death phobia is in place in the culture that legalizes euthanasia. I think it goes without saying then that the legalization of euthanasia is consistent with and preserves the death phobia that prompted its demand in the first place. Which leads you sadly to the obvious final conclusion of things, obvious to me at least, and it's this. Euthanasia is another way by which a death phobic culture maintains its death phobia. Because the principal understanding of death, that it is um, uh, beyond anything else, is destructive, horrific, means you no good, is here to annihilate you and to uh, you know, drag you under and all the rest, none of that stuff gets challenged when euthanasia is legalized and then prescribed. It's in fact enforced, it's reinforced, and you end up with a circumstance in which you're going to have generations of people growing up in the presence of euthanasia as a right, and they're going to be absolutely dumbfounded to find that their dread of dying eclipses the dread of their grandparents. I feel that that's the case for me. I had a, I've had a lot of challenges in my life. One of them has been opiate addiction and the hell of trying to get off that shit that puts you to the unbelievable amount of suffering where you try to get out of your skin and you can't because you're in it. And uh, it's torturous. And there's a reason why people have a very difficult time getting off of it. And there's a reason why people take it too because it gets rid of this feeling to some degree, at least temporarily, until you need higher and higher doses. I ended up taking a very powerful route from Africa. It was used in initiations called a boga. And they found in, I don't know, the 70s or 80s, but it was very under the radar that uh, this medicine, uh, when taken, uh, immediately stops opiate withdrawals and then takes you on a three-day process of like usually <clears throat> beating that living hell out of you oftentimes and showing you how, you're, how you believe you're separate from the world and how you're not. And it does it in a way that it could only do, uh, that, that speaks directly to you. I mean, I, when it happened to me, it started as a shaman from Africa. I felt like I was actually in Africa and that there was a shaman with my decapitated head. Uh, and he said, you know, you've come to Africa, you've taken a boga, and it's time to go beyond the blood. And uh, it was three days of very unusual experiences and feeling very close to death. 
and terror and all sorts of things that I, you know, got to feel in full spectrum, full spectrum of emotions, joy and all of that too, of course. But it ended in a very, in a very uh, terrifying way. And it was when I thought the medicine was over and it was a lot like Lord of the Rings with Balrog when Gandalf is walking across the thing and he thinks that he's made it through the orc field in the middle of the earth and he's gotten the fellowship through and he feels like everything is over and he's over he's just come across and then the he the he says you shall not pass and he he makes it to the balrog falls into the pit and as he's smiling the balrog wraps its you know tail around him and pulls him under and it was his form of gandalf's initi i've heard it be called gandalf's initiation and then he became out as Gandalf the White, because essentially he went into the pits of the hell of his own demon. And uh, for me, at the end, I th- thought I was through it all because it was challenging. And uh, I was, uh, I'd fallen asleep and I'd woken up and I was convinced for whatever reason, I wasn't seeing anything, but I was deeply convinced that I was put in this place by aliens from another planet and that I was being put in a capsule uh, to, to, to live and survive forever where I would never die, and I would be tortured for all eternity. And every moment would be the most painful moment of my life, and all I wish I could do is end my life, but I couldn't. And I felt what that must feel like, and it was unimaginably terrifying. And had there been a weapon or something near me at the time, I think I would have killed myself. But at the same time, I was locked in so much terror that I was actually frozen in the fear. And somehow, I don't know if it triggered somebody, but they came rushing in and uh, trying to figure out a way to stop the fear gave me Valium. But it didn't really help because I had 20 minutes of this shit plus whatever froze me before then. But I've never forgotten this experience. Recently, I read a book called, I didn't even finish it, it was called Homo Duez by Noel Yuval Harari, where he proposes that human beings are going to become biologically immortal and live forever, and the rich are going to essentially feed off of the poor, kind of like the Matrix machines, you know, feeding off the, you know, you know, the human bodies. And what I experienced when reading that was the idea that the people that have it the worst would be the ones that were able to extend their life indefinitely because of the sheer amount of suffering, or even if you could avoid the suffering somehow, the very feeling of what it is to be human would be overtaken, almost like that Darth Vader figure. I don't know. I I just felt compelled to share that based on this idea of extending life, extending life at, at what cost and what are we doing with our lives anyway? And what are we doing with this extra time? And what does this extra time look like? Well, it's clear to me that it's all of our limits that employ our humanity. And it's all of our endings that give our humanity an opportunity to appear and to earn its keep. And as soon as you corrupt the capacity to end, or compromise it kind of irrevocably, you're compromising your capacity to be human at exactly the same time. And this is, an, I think, an unintended consequence of the utter refusal to be bound by your times, you see. But mm. being bound by your times strikes me as a moral obligation, not a lifestyle option, a moral obligation. And it's, it's very striking that the people who are funding this high-end, high-tech research into immortality are not people in their 60s or their 70s. That's not where the money's coming from. It's people your age that are after this thing. And that's absolutely bracing because at some point, (laughs) you kind of want to believe that you can learn from the mistakes of your predecessors. But far from that happening, it would appear to be the case that the the kind of internet-fueled gurgillion dollars that are being accumulated here and there, they seem to be devoted either to Mars or to immortality or to both, uh, at least in certain sectors. And this is more of the same, man. Hmm. It's more of the same. It's, a sti- it's, a, it's an ongoing unwillingness to live by the limits that were entrusted to us. Obviously, the world is suffering terribly by virtue of unwillingness to do so. 
but our unwillingness to live within our limits is our suffering too, it seems to me. So, so the solution, well, it's not the right word, the, the sane human response would be to willingly be taken up by your endings, by your limits first, that's how you practice it, and ultimately by your endings, and your willingness to end is the gift you have to bequeath to the people that come after you. But if you hasten your end, it's not clear that you have that willingness. You're still engaged in the, pro- in the, in the program of being the supreme being in your own story. But we're not equipped for supreme being uh, you know, function. Clearly we're not. We have a hard time maintaining our humanity. It's not... It's no surprise, for example, to me that we have a circumstance where we're living ever longer. And uh, I don't know, you know, to what purpose, I, I know what the illusions are, I think, but the purposes are far from clear. But as we're living ever longer in the West, we're producing fewer and fewer radical functioning elders. In other words, the population's getting older and we're having fewer elders among us in an ever aging population. On the surface of it, it should never work that way. More old people should produce more elders. Only if you believe or that experience inevitably generates wisdom, but it's clear that it doesn't. It's experience in the teeth of limit that generates something like wisdom. And when you have older people availing themselves of the opportunity to not die anytime soon, be not surprised that the young and the intermediate generations are adrift because the exemplars of limit are gone without a trace, AWOL. And and the, the kind of moral order that you inherit is one where you get it while you can, and then when you can't get any more, you get out of here uh, in a way that suits you with no regard for the people you leave behind. And I'll, I'll finish that observation with the story. I'm sitting in Nelson, British Columbia right now. It's uh, snowing. I'm looking outside the hotel window. I got a gig tonight. And I'm remembering the last time I was in this town, it was years ago, uh, the, the high school principal had asked me to come in and talk to her class in her school just about life, I guess. So I came in there and there was a bit of a revolution because it was kind of alternative school. And basically the entire school came down to the session when it was only supposed to be for the oldest kids. And when question time came around, this was the first question I was asked. It was uh, by a a sort of gothed out 15 year old girl with heavy bangs and razor blades and the whole thing, pancake makeup. She put up her hand and she declared the following. She said to me, I have a right to kill myself, period. She didn't say another word. And you could see all the staff at the back of the hall just blanch, right? Because you're not supposed to talk about suicide around adolescents. It's just forbidden these days because apparently they can't tell the difference between talking about it and advocating. it. So I could see all of that, but I wasn't claimed by that particular thing. And this is what I said to her. And this is what I say to anyone who's imagining that the only sane and moral way out of here is to, is to, you know, grab yourself by the scruff of the neck and yank yourself out. That's another unwillingness to live within the limits that are entrusted to you. I said to her this, do you got anybody in this world you love? And as a 15-year-old girl in, in, you know, in public, she's not keen on the question, obviously. So she sort of uh, bristled. And I, I said, I'm not asking for names. I'm just asking if you do. Have you got anybody in this world that you love? And finally she said, yes. Okay, then. Next question is, have you got anybody in this world who loves you? It's not necessarily the same answer, nor is it the same list. But do you? And she said, yes. I said, okay, just so we're clear then, if you exercise this right of yours that you've declared unilaterally with no hesitation, you are asking at least a couple of those people that we just talked about to come and identify your remains with a tag on your toe on a slab or a gurney somewhere. 
that is what you mean, isn't it? By your rights, that you intend for that to happen too. And of course, she looked at me blankly, and most of the class looked at me blankly, and because no one had done the math on what it means to have rights, as children often don't, but increasingly grown-ups don't either. But the other half of rights in their exercise is responsibilities and consequences. And you should know that that's what the word nostalgia means. Nostalgia means the return of pain. That's the literal meaning of the word. And that's what the, the notion that you have a right to get out of here when it suits you is nostalgia. It's the return of a kind of pain that you imagine will be solved by your exercising this particular right. And it's not clear at all that it will solve it for you. And it's an absolute given that you will redistribute all of those sorrows, all of that impossible to live feeling among the people who knew you, the people who heard about you, ending your life whenever you did, you'll redistribute the agony masquerading as a solution. Hmm. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's easy to be around, to be alert, to have a mind, you know, to read things, to see the oncomingness of, of how crazy it is. It's far from easy, but it's not supposed to be easy at a time like this, you see. The notion that you have to be hopeful as a prelude to taking up the culture work is, it's not only a sucker's game, but it's a child's understanding yet again, that you have to feel positive first before we can count on you. Come yeah. on, man. what does your positivity depend upon? You know what it depends upon, ignoring three quarters of what's going on. Mm -hmm. Okay, so how yeah. reliable does that make you? that you're finally positive and you're finally ready for active duty in a time of extraordinary undoing. So the alternative to my mind obviously is that you learn deeply the poverties of your time. And personal suffering is not the same thing as learning the poverties of the times because the poverties of the times principally are not personal. And the more you personalize things, the less profoundly you can proceed. It seems like everything is individualized more and more than it's ever been. Like sure. what it sure. put in containers of who I am is this list of things. And what's being called, what I see is the pain of all of this somehow calling everybody together or groups of people that love each other together to be with their collective suffering and joy in some way that we don't really know quite how to do that. And uh, I mean, I think I've been trying to do something sort of like that for a couple weeks, about four years now. I started this dance where they play music in a in this idea of like from birth till death and some of it's really dark and some of it's more upbeat and it tries to take you through these emotions and people are experiencing different levels of catharsis, but I don't know how much meaning I think that this has been a struggle is there's been a struggle to have meaning around it, shared meaning. There's something that happens. There's something more that's happening there than I feel elsewhere <clears throat> we had a Dia de los Muertos dance on um, uh, October 30th. We brought in a family that's been practicing this for generations, and it was very powerful. And then immediately afterwards, a DJ came on and played, and it, it for me, I, I, it felt like my soul and my body got disconnected, and I felt nothing, like no emotion, no happiness. You know, I, even the thoughts of like, you know, school shooters mowing down people. And if that happened, I don't know if I'd feel anything. I mean, it just, it was like this almost hijack of somehow this lack of really fully understanding what sacred ceremony or ritual looks like, but that at the same time craving it so deeply that we're, I think there's a lot of people trying to bring these things, trying to participate in this healing. And then a lot of times, 
they get told that they're culturally appropriating, but they don't know what to do and uh, instead end up doing nothing or doing what's the ritual of our culture, which is going to a tavern and drinking. Well, it's not even a tavern anymore. It's a nightclub with lights and music blasting. And then you take Zoloft or Prozac or Lamactyl or Xanax to calm your anxiety and you become a a pharmaceutical this Darth Vader theme keeps coming back, this control. You know, I'm struggling with questions with you. Um, but what <clears throat> what would you say uh, from the last five years of your Orphan Wisdom School that you've learned that people that can't come to Canada to attend this, that are trying to create this healing and they're feeling this sense of anemia, this aloneness, this alienation, uh, what can they do when the establishments that they go to, their churches and all of that have lost the sacredness that may have been there once upon a time? And you're a, you have a master's degree in theology, so and you wanted to be, I think, a priest from what I recall, or a minister or something of this nature, so you're not completely ignorant when it comes to these matters. What would you say that they do and about the cultural appropriative aspect, because it seems like anything you do could look like some other culture, because these are archetypical processes of connection and healing wanting to happen, maybe. Yeah, well, it's really important to stop stealing. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, starving people mistake a lot of things for food, which are not food. And they're willing to put almost anything into their mouths for the sake of being able to chew and swallow. And that's a large part of what's going on sort of in in this appropriation circumstance. I mean, even the fact that you would refer to it by its Spanish name, I mean, there's no obligation to do that. I understand the motivation, no doubt, is to be respectful to its origins and so forth. But at some point, when I said begin with the poverties, What I mean by that is, at some point, there has to be a willingness. Failing that, there has to be a concerted effort, minus the willingness, to forego someone else's answers. I'm not persuaded about the archetypical uh, off-the-hookness of that observation, by the way. I mean, different cultures, different ways. When you're the product of a non-culture, when you're the product of an amalgam that never got to the stage of culture, which from everything you've said, I assume you understand yourself to be. Um, and you're not the only one far from it. I mean, you know, North America never happened as a kind of the new world. It, it simply never happened because it was begun by people who were on the run, not by people who were seeking a better day. And in that sense, uh, you know, the fix was in from the very beginnings of the European presence on the continent because it wasn't new. We didn't turn the page. We were running from something and it was the first thing we unpacked when we got here. And that's what we're living now. So with that in mind, it's, it seems to me the first thing you do is the thing that's most available to you. And that's the language. Some people have admired my capacity with the language and I appreciate the acknowledgement. I've worked tremendously hard at trying to find a language, especially when I was in the death trade, where the realities of dying appeared in the language. I never found it. So I had to begin to craft one with the, you know, with the English that was available to me. And uh, you know, I continue to do that. I'm telling you that the language that was entrusted to you at your birth will not fail you if you are willing to learn it deeply. Because Many of these prejudices that you've been describing are buried in the unexamined modernization of the language. But the language is is like a kelp bed in the ocean. That you see the top three feet on the surface of the ocean. You mistake that for the whole length of kelp. Um, That's what you're seeing in the contemporary use of the English language. The top three feet that lays on the surface but there's 30 feet below the surface that links it to the sea floor. And then I don't know what kind of root system they have. And that 30 feet is the history of the word, 
the etymology of the word, the old stories, in other words. These things taken together constitute your birthright. That's right. The language that you and I are speaking in is not some fractured, you know, unclaimed bastard child of modernity. The language we're speaking in has as much deep wisdom in it as you could bear if you're willing to learn it. And stop slandering. I'm not saying you personally are slandering it, but you know very well that it's slandered in the marketplace. It's slandered in the political arena, obviously. English? Yes, English. Con- mm-hmm. Correct. English. Yeah. Yeah, I have a lot of I have a lot of trauma around languages. I my my family speaks Russian and I went to Russian school and all of that. And then I went to my father's house and was forbidden to speak Russian. And then I was forced to speak Russian here and then forbidden to speak Russian there and forbidden to speak English here. Eventually, I went mute in Russian. I, was, I would be able to understand it, read it, write it. But I would, when I would go to speak it, I was dumb or stupid, as you'd said, where that, right when you said that earlier. I felt that I couldn't speak Russian. Like I was the only kid in Russian school that couldn't speak Russian, but did phenomenal on the papers but I just couldn't get myself to use the words. And maybe there's some deeper reason why, or I'm not sure what it is, but I, I do know that there's been a deep shame. I remember going to bed at night thinking, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a moron, I'm an idiot, and how the hell can I not speak this language? But I, I, it was like I couldn't, like someone with a stutter that couldn't stop stuttering. Uh, yeah. Language is, in it, is something you're entrusted with, man, not something you're afflicted by. And uh, it, it takes a lot of work to get on the other side of the associations we have with things like you've just described. And in an Im- fundamentally an immigrant culture, there's generation upon generation where, where you know, these huge dilemmas around expressing yourself and being understood and so on, they gather. We, you know, yes, it does happen. And it's important, I think, to say given that we're appearing in people's lives by virtue of this conversation, that if you're not seven and if you're not 12 or 15 or 18 or 20 anymore, then you're, you have no obligation to re-experience the trauma as you did as a seven-year-old. You can be alert to the trauma as a 37-year-old. Of course, you can be deeply on the receiving end of the trauma, but you have no obligation to maintain some fidelity to the trauma by being re-traumatized every time you recollect it, you see. So this is what I'm talking about when I use the phrase, a grown-up. You know, the answer to the last question you've asked, not really a question, but dilemma, for me, is partly the Orphan Wisdom School that I'm lucky enough to have for 10 years now, and partly the Knights of Grief and Mystery are going to bring me to your town. Here I am at the age of 65 with a rock and roll band. And it's not, we ain't doing oldies. We're not doing best, you know, greatest hits or best of, or we're not doing anything you've heard before. What we're doing is contending with the things that we've been talking about for the last 45 minutes. And we're doing so in an ages old form. When people interview me about it, they usually ask me the, what can people expect from it? Or how do you understand what this thing is? Mm-hmm. And I say the, the reason that it's so hard for people to understand is because it's an old, old form of human contemplation, not a new one, it's old. It's older than theater. The problem with theater is we have an audience and we have a script. And I submit to you that whoever gave us our understanding of theater, and it's probably the Greeks, took ritual and subverted it by casting the participants into the role of an audience, kind of inert, so-called Greek chorus, and crafting the idea of a script, which circumvents the presence of the gods and determines ahead of time, more or less what's going to take place. And what we've done is we've re-ritualized theater, if you will. And we've, we're attempting to return to a time when the gods were at play and the ends were far from determined. And we had a minor but fundamental part to play. And the people who come to see us are integral to the outcome. And I'm doing something about everything you've asked me about. This is not hypothetical. I'm, you know, I'm on a tour. Uh, this is what's become of our life. We don't have much of a home life. I have a nine piece ensemble that's touring around with me. 
Financially, it's absolutely undoable. It's indefensible. It doesn't work. There's no sense in doing it by most estimations of the term. And we know ourselves to be children of remarkable fortune by virtue of our willingness to do this and the willingness of people to come and attend to it. And when they do so in the book signing lineup afterwards, they routinely say to me, I did not know what to expect when I came. And now I understand less than when I came. But there's something about the lack of the old understanding that has somehow lifted me and claimed me. And I mean, that's an extraordinary testimonial to get and I get it night after night. And we're not giving anybody artificial, arbitrary or easy answers to anything. What we're trying to do is raise question to the level of a kind of devotional practice. That wonder becomes a kind of moral responsibility that people, citizens of a free culture, have a deep obligation to. That's what we're doing. So I don't, I don't suffer you know, the degrees of uncertainties that some of the things that you've talked about seem to have. And it's not because I'm certain, it's because I'm mobilized. Hmm. Hmm. I think <clears throat> I often feel like those people that speak at your orphan wisdom school and say, I don't know what to say because I don't know. It's like we're told if we're not, if we don't do it, if we don't do it right, we can't do it. It's this same idea of this. You have to know the script in order to be able to say what it is that you say. And it gets really tangled. And this idea of certainty, this idea of predictability, and this idea of being like somebody else even if that somebody else is this idealized version of Christ being like whatever this idea is and somewhere your soul gets lost in all of that. At least I feel that way myself and trying to find my way to stay mobilized, as you would say, has been, has been, I think where I've been being pulled as of late. And it's good to have, it's good to see other people that appear to be doing this because it doesn't it doesn't seem like <laughs> the vast majority of people are doing that. I heard somebody refer recently uh, butcher his name Ivan he called it uh, the city of endless slumber or something. And it feels like a lot of humanity or humans homo sapiens are lost there. And uh, yeah, I'm ex I was going to say excited because that's so often the word I use to describe when I'm anticipating something. Um, I'm searching for the word. I feel personally, after this conversation, um, curious to delve more deeply with a deeper sense of dignity into the English language to search for the depth of the stories that are contained and hidden between the words that I use to speak every day and to speak more intentionally with what is coming alive in me to others as an invitation of sorts into this place where I can meet them and myself in a mystery, really, because I don't do that. And just talking about it seems both inspiring and terrifying. Because I also don't want to alienate people by speaking in this way. When we first started speaking, you know, I thought, what the hell is everybody going to think about the way that Stephen is talking, and they're going to just turn the damn podcast off. You know, he lacks concision. He lacks, you know, the minute and a half element that gives the dopamine release in the brain that then people could say, I, 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 Oh, I know what pocket to put this in. And people have less and less pockets these days, but I feel inspired, feel inspired. Maybe that's a, one of many good words I could use to describe how I feel about the grief and mystery tour. And I, if I had hopes for it, for me, myself and the community that I'm going to share this with is that, Many of the people attend, our group is really young. 
And I think that sometimes it's painful to look at these things. And it's, we live in a culture now where we're told, you know, it's a law of attraction. As a matter of fact, it's a, it's a, if you're having a shitty experience, it's a solipsistic view of the world, narcissistic and solipsistic view, where if you're having shitty times or if shitty things are happening in the world, it's because you're thinking about them or focusing on them. It's a maddening shame spiral because I feel I have been blessed, I guess. At the time, I felt cursed by it, but I have been blessed by the fact that I've been unable to, I think you use the term, uh, hide, or maybe the term would be sequester the bad from the good and just look at the good. I can't seem to do that. I seem incapable of it on a deep soul level unless I'm taking Oxycontin. Well, originally it was alcohol and it got stronger and stronger until where even Oxycontin couldn't mask, couldn't create a powerful enough shield uh, between these two worlds. So here I guess I sit with you in this muck that we're in and uh, hope, I hope, I don't know if hope's the right word, uh, I, I endeavor to understand and bathe within my generation's portion of this to assemble some form of uh, digni- dignity and shared meaning to bring the gods back to life and our role as both participant in and spectator of the mystery that is life here on our living planet with all of the other not non-human and other than human beings and unseen beings that live amongst us. Well, it sounds like your ideal uh, audience material for a night of grief for mystery. If you, if you don't mind me saying <laughs> good, I'll get my ticket. There you go. And you know, we'll, we'll be, end as we began with uh, an observation from the old man, you know, you were using the phrase, uh, you know, good and bad and, you know, sort of dark and light and, and, and encouraging and not, and, you know, concise and verbose and all of this kind of back and forth thing. And uh, how about this? You know, most of life does not obey the slander of those kind of categories. Most of it doesn't fit in to good or bad. It's, uh, it makes a joke of those kinds of categories. So the old man said, you know, the dealer wants you thinking that it's either black or white. Thank God it's not that simple in my secret life. I think all we're trying to do is make sure it's not so much of a secret anymore, that we have no obligation to the old apartheid, you know, of right and wrong and good and bad, and that we understand from an adult's point of view that the world is complex, but the circumstances are simple. The dilemmas are simple, but they're not easy. And we confuse those two things at our peril. And the world is hoping that we catch on to this, it seems to me, and that our service to the world and to each other is not anything more for the time being than an exercise in real discernment. And uh, I'm very capable of concision, as you say, the fact that I don't practice it doesn't mean I'm without it. It means I don't hold it in high esteem. That's all. As you know, the sound bites, they're for people with uh, ADHD. I'm not one of those guys. I think we're, we were blessed with ears and, and, a, and a capacity to attend over a longer term. And the only thing that interferes with that is our insistence in understanding absolutely everything at every given second, which makes you a megalomaniac not a seeker, you see. So there's, there's nothing wrong with being uncertain. That's what ambivalent means. It means the capacity to entertain a number of contending concerns without prematurely collapsing into certainty in order to banish all of them but one. I just envision reading a book and seeing like so much more of a dance happening as opposed to a linear process trying to trying to stay grasped in that tense moment. You know, the best books trust you. They trust your end of things. You know, I, 
I hope I've written a couple of them that do that very thing. You know, the fact that I'm, I, you know, at pains to try to make things lucid uh, is me bearing you in mind. It's not me talking over you. It's me bearing you in mind. The fact that you don't recall everything all the time, well, welcome to the show, man. Neither do I. But uh, on a good day, I, I'm able to talk myself towards what I'm seeking out. And this is why I trust the speech, you know. And I, I deeply recommend it because you don't have to go anywhere. Uh, you begin with what occurs to your tongue. You just start right where you, right where you are. You don't need a conference. You don't need a retreat center. You don't need a life coach. Uh, those people are all going to have find other stuff to do while you attend to the language. So that's what I've tried to do in the time that we've spoken now. And, uh, and you can feel that the beginnings of getting somewhere with it, you see? And even though nothing fundamentally has changed in the world, it's still snowing here in Nelson, British Columbia, and it's still whatever it is where you are, we did not require the complete um, elimination of uncertainty as a sign that we had actually spoken together. It's still there and we're still here, but our capacity might be subtly different than it was. And that is not a bad outcome of an hour spent in the teeth of the storm. I have to go now because I got a lot of, I got a sound check and everything to attend to, but I really thank you for the, uh, the invitation, the opportunity to wonder about these things and not put a period on the end of every sentence and sound like we own the joint. Thank you, Stephen. I really appreciate your time, and I look forward to meeting you in person while you're here. Okay, man. We'll see you in, I guess, whatever it is, a week or so. Yep, I'll see you in a week or so. Okay, very good. Take care of yourself. Take care. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening, and please follow us to hear future episodes where we discuss topics such as alternative states of consciousness achieved through dance, intention, and shamanic practices, sacred economics, dream work, trauma healing, building community, permaculture, healthy and compassionate living and eating practices, somatic and alternative healing modalities, politics, psychology, mythology, and more. Our work is focused on the liberation of spirit, a return to the sacred, which is a constant collective inquiry. We aim both in person and on this podcast to plant and water the seeds of liberation from economic inequality, trauma, systemic conditioning, addiction, loss of soul, loss of meaning, hopelessness, helplessness, isolation, shame, nightmares, guilt, and a return to glimpses of your birthright, of dignity, joy, community, collaboration, equality, and constantly beautifying new world where you are not alone. And always, if you're ever in the Salt Lake City area, come join us for yoga, dance, or in the garden. A community of beautiful souls are here to welcome you. We gather in community Wednesday, 6 p.m. till 10 p.m. and Sunday, 11 to 3 p.m. And we have a vegan brunch or vegan dinner after every event. Our gatherings are all ages and are of no religious affiliation. We look forward to seeing you.